0: Welcome back to Grow Your Impact, Income and Influence, the number one show helping you reach millions, whether it's millions in your bank account or millions of followers online, whatever that word means to you. Today, I've got something really special for you. So if you like poker, That's I know that's a little different from what we normally talk about on the show. This guy changed my life in 2014 or 15 when I read his book on poker tells, which is all about reading people. Now he has a podcast called the Behavior Podcast. That's behavior-podcast.com where he studies people, and we talk about the habits of high-performing people, kind of the psychology behind why people do things. He's got a series of poker books that's all on Poker Tells. It has been called the definitive work on Poker Tells, which is pretty crazy. I grew up reading Mike Caro's stuff, if you know anything about poker, and he blew that stuff out of the water. Um, Zachary, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Nice to, nice to see you. No and problem. Should, I, I'll say real quick. The podcast is called "People Who Read People." It just has behavior dash podcast as the URL. So it's it was a play on the Barbara Streisand "People Who Need People" song. That's that's the origins of the name of the title.
0: The title. Nice. If you guys want to visit the podcast, it is linked down below for you. We're going to jump into all that, but I want to know like where did this all start for you? Like, how did you start? I mean, my my intro to you was reading the poker tells book and then the verbal poker tells book and then the low limit poker tells book how mm-hmm. did you like set out to be like i'm going to write a book on poker tells
1: yeah it's a it is kind of an interesting thing i think it's just a culmination of a few different factors so for example like i've always been interested in psychology from a young age like my dad had all these books on the bookshelf of various, you know, various things. He had like some Freud books. He had some other psychology books. And like, as a kid, I would just like randomly read these books. Cause we were out in we lived down in the rural, a rural area in Southern Maryland where, um, you know, there wasn't much to do. So I spent, spent time reading these random books. So that got me interested in psychology early on. Um, and then I got into poker when I was a kid and ended up uh, taking poker pretty seriously in college. Like I was setting up games and I went to Savannah college of art and design in Georgia was setting up games there and like hung out with, uh, somebody else who was into, into poker and into gambling, um, and got serious about that. And then, um, uh, and then I would take notes on my friends, like their, their behavioral patterns. I was always taking notes in this little book, uh, about that. So I was interested in the psychology and behavior aspect. And then later it wasn't like I ever even planned on it, but I ended up moving to Albuquerque kind of randomly. And, uh, Got uh, was traveling around the country a little bit and, and started hanging out with. Then this was like in 2003 when the poker boom was really happening, and I made some friends there who were into poker and were playing poker, you know, f- professionally for for money. Uh, they were trying to, you know, doing it part time anyway and and taking it seriously. And so I got into that, and that that's what led me playing higher stakes at the casinos and stuff and taking it even more seriously. And so during the poker boom, I, I was always thinking like, well, I know stuff about. You know poker tells, and I've talked to people about poker tells, and I've never seen some of this stuff written in a book. And so I was always thinking, well, somebody, you know, obviously somebody more well known uh, than I am is going to write something. There's all these well known poker players, and I, you know, I, I played poker for a living for like four years in that in that range. It was like 2003 to 2007, and then just on the side since. But uh, it was during those years that I was really surprised that there wasn't a better book on poker tells out there like Caro like you mentioned like Caro's books were considered classics but they were also known to be you know kind of simplistic and focusing on like beginner level stuff and also you know a lot of stuff on five card draw which nobody really played much anymore uh so then like I had that inkling back then and I was like taking notes on a lot of stuff and thinking about it but I always figured somebody else would beat me to writing a better book but then like flash forward to 2010 and I still was like, well, nobody's written a better book. So maybe I'll just write it, you know? So it wasn't like I thought I was, a, I was a genius. I think there's some factors, you know, like I've always been interested in writing. For example, like I went to school for video and film, but I've always been interested in the writing and the scripting of stuff and thinking about writing and writing short stories when I was young. Uh, so it was a culmination of like my interest in poker and psychology and and writing, I think, you know because a lot of people that are probably, there's more experienced uh, poker players than me. Uh, and probably know more. There's players like Phil Ivey that probably know more about reading people, but they just, are, they're more interested in, in playing than they are about writing or teaching people who, what the elements are. Whereas I was like, I'm not that interested in po- playing poker. I, I, I was never really that interested in playing for a living. Cause honestly, the the lifestyle is kind of stressful. The, uh, you know, it's a hard way to, to make a living uh, even when you're good at it. Uh, so the, the culmination of all those things is what led to me writing things. And then I always planned. Like, you know, I was always like, well, we'll see how people like it. You know, I, I had no real expectations. Uh, I knew I thought it was good, but you never know how things will go. But then people really responded to it and like professional players were were saying like, they thought it was the best book on the subject. So that encouraged me to do more work on it. And I wrote about verbal poker tells for my second one and uh, did some work for world series of poker uh, final table players for the main event, uh, analyzing poker tells and, so just one thing led to another, and then that's what led to me being interested in, in doing the general psychology thing, because I've always been interested in general psychology, and it was sort of a way to take some of the, uh, you know, the small amount of fame I had in the poker world and, like, apply it to the, you know, general psychology area. Uh, so, yeah, that that's kind of a, a short synopsis of what, how all that led to one thing, led to another I mean,
0: I- that is quite the journey. I mean, just going from a kid growing up, I I read all the time too. My parents were teachers. They forced they were like for every 2 hours that you read, you can watch 1 hour of TV. So oh, it was good. like reading, doing homework, but similar. Nice.
1: Yeah.
0: And then some success. And then I I like the idea that like I mean, you've always struck me as somebody that's humble. I've read a lot of your emails, I've listened to some of the shows, even reading the books. Like you're not at no point do I hear you say that you are the best at this, but you are the one who has put the work in, which we're going to get to kind of habits of high performers as we go through the show. One of the things that if you're listening to this and you're like, why does poker have anything to do with, you know, reaching millions, growing your impact? I always have told people that poker is the biggest lesson on how to respond under stress. Because when you're, I mean, if you're playing for fun, like it's all fun and games, right? But when you have I mean, I play 510. Sometimes I play a little bit higher. If I have, you know, two or three grand on the table, and like you learn how you respond and you learn how to, you have things that go wrong that you can't control. All you can control is your response to it. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. see, I mean, you're, we're going to get into some of the specific tells and like how you see people respond. But like I remember, I remember playing online. This is, this will date me a little bit, but like this is a lesson in stress. Um, I was playing, it was a 200, 400 online. And I think, I think we were pretty deep. I think I had like $900 and a guy hit like a two outer and like, it had been like a string of like ongoing. And like, I broke my chair. Like I literally like stood up and like slammed my chair into a wall yeah. and like, yeah. was, like what just happened? And I was like, I've got to learn. And like, from that day forward, I actually read uh Jared Teller's book um, on like, ha- like the mental game of poker. And like, but that has, I will tell you now running a multimillion dollar business and like having employees and having all these things like they're like the only true thing you can control is how you respond to things that happen. You can control a lot of things, but there's always stuff that isn't. Yeah, for sure. Poker, I, Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I, I just think that, yeah, there's there's so many lessons that poker forces you like assuming you're taking poker seriously it forces you to think about things in a much more objective way, you know, like the things you said of, it forces you to not be results oriented, it forces you to focus on making the best decision you can, regardless of what the outcome is. And that has so many applications to real life, whether it's your, you know, professional things you choose, or you, and, and, and so many people, I think, are, are uh, you know, we're instinctively results oriented, you know, we we, we tend to think, oh, something went wrong or something went right. And, and like, therefore we made the right decision. But a poker teaches you to not be results oriented and, and to just focus on, well, am I making the best decision with the information I have now? And, and you know, it, it just, I, I think we are, That that is such a human problem that we will, you know, we, we hear it every day, probably from people where they're like, oh, I screwed up. And, and it's like, did you screw up or did you just get unlucky? You know, it's like, it, it forces you to, to try to be more objective with your analysis and, and not be so emotionally tied to the results. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that's not just not emotionally tied to the results, but not emotionally tied to the decision, right? Like how many people do you know, like poker or not poker that make an emotional decision that they know is the wrong decision? and then they they go down this rabbit hole and then it's like a downward spiral right it's mm-hmm. like oh i made the wrong decision because i'm emotional now this bad thing happened now i'm super emotional and i'm going to keep making really bad decisions till i hit the bottom and it's like
1: right what yeah you can even you can happen? even you can even tie that to you know mental health stuff because i feel like a lot of mental health stuff is like beating yourself up for you know it's almost like a downward spiral like you mentioned of like beating yourself up for something that went wrong. And, uh, you know, and that and that makes you feel like you have lower self esteem and and judge yourself more and angry at yourself. And that leads you to make another bad decision. And then you're like, well, now I feel even worse about myself. And I'm even more of a a bad person that leads to making a a worse decision. You know, these things have applied to so many, you know, the the meaning that we assign to events and, and the decisions we make just apply across
0: everything. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, cause I want to know, like you've spent a lot of time studying people both at the poker table and off. I know like I'll sit down on a poker table and I can watch people like as their night progresses, if something bad happens to them, if something good happens to them, like I can tell when they're getting ready to like go on tilt. And that's the biggest thing like I look for, right? You look for the guy that like loses a small pot because yeah. he shouldn't have. Yeah. And he just goes through the roof and like, you can tell right away. I mean, we did. I, I guess I can give a real brief hand history. Like the guy we were playing five ten Bellagio last week. Um, I was in Vegas for an event. I sat down to play the guy. You watched him and like, he would, he would bet flop no matter what. And then like somebody would either raise or call and then he would shut down. And he just got more and more frustrated. So like we, the hand doesn't matter what I had, but I had, I had ACE four, the hand came down. It was queen seven, nine, he bet I called turn comes. I think it was a two or inconsequential he bet. And I just raised on him. He re-raised, I jammed, he folded like Mm -hmm. the response because I knew he was just getting more and more frustrated. And I I guess he could have had something right. But it's like, you see, you're
1: based on patterns. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Like you see people do these things. If you just listened to all that and had no idea, the guy basically (laughs) made a decision best on based on stress. So my question is how do you see people that respond better under stress? Do they have self-coping mechanisms? Do they have or do they just learn to be objective? Like what are some th- what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, you know, cuz it's it is so debatable about what makes someone better at handling stress, you know, like there's, you know, there's research into anxiety that that shows some of the, you know, kind of biological seeming uh mechanisms, you know, so For example, like I've always thought, I'm pretty bad fundamentally at handling stress. Like I've always had anxiety issues. Like I actually dropped out of my first college I went to due to basically, you know, a so-called nervous breakdown, high anxiety situation. So I've I've always thought that I was kind of fundamentally wired badly in that respect. Though then again, you could get into, you know, uh, environmental factors too. Uh, But I would say, like, I think, I think that you know, it it kind of gets into the what they call the growth mindset, kind of stuff of like, are you willing to be uncomfortable, and uh, are you willing to uh, interpret, you know, your your failures as as uh, leading to something better? You know, I, it's so much of it comes down to like, I may be, I may be uncomfortable or wrong or uh, even outright miserable uh, in the moment, but am I am I can I, am I able to see that in a narrative of like I'm getting better at this thing, and I'm going to learn from these things? Uh, so I think the people that really that are, that are better able to perform under pressure. You know, it's a lot of it is just experience, like being willing to put yourself in those spots and keep getting better at it and being willing to be, uh, to live with that discomfort and that anxiety. Cause you will get better. I mean, even though I'm someone who had anxiety problems and depression problems at a young age, like I, uh, you know, I think poker helped me deal with that stuff. You know, it, it kept putting me in those, uh, situations. I mean, to some extent, you know, I still have some of that. So that gets into the realm of like how much of it is, is wired for me or something. But I do think like no matter what, uh, taking, taking the frame of like viewing it as you're improving, viewing it as you're going to learn something uh, and, and just keep getting that experience, having those experiences, uh, all that stuff will, will help people perform better under pressure. And like we said, not being results oriented and, and acknowledging that you can make, you know, you can make a really good decision and it could still fail. And you just have to be okay with that. You know, like that's that's what life is really. It's like, you know, you could be, you could things just happen. You can die at a young age randomly, you know, like there's no there's no telling life is not definitely not fair and and nothing's fair. Um, so and and being willing to be accept that about life and about any venture, you know, because we're all making I think that's the thing. It's like poker's interesting because people tend to think like, gambling is something we do in the casinos. It's like, no, we're we're gambling every day with all the decisions we make. We're making decisions about, you know, our, our interpersonal relationships. We're making decisions like, do I take this job in another city? Do I, do I try to get this specific career or job? It's like these are all, you know, just gambling in the sense that we're making choices that have big, theoretically big outcomes and we could fail at them or, you know, we could be successful at them. And some of it's random chance involved, you know. So um yeah, that's. I don't know if that answered all your question there, but
0: yeah, no, that's great. the yeah. The next question I have kind of plays off of that. Away from the poker table, I have noticed like in interpersonal relationships. I'm I'm social. I do a lot of networking. Uh, my business has. I'm at a lot of events. I speak on a lot of stages, but I can see people that have the same tells that they have at the table when somebody's uncomfortable or when they're, for lack of a better word, like faking something. And or maybe just they're uncomfortable or they're getting frustrated. And I know that something like they're going to act in something that is not their best interest. Um, My question is, do you think that we can learn our own tells? Like, do you think that we can learn like our own behavior patterns to where we are making subpar decisions or we're being emotional? And do you think we can unwind that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's, uh, just bad decision-making or, or like our behavioral tells, I I think, you know, what I, one thing I say in the, in the first poker tells book is, uh, you know, a big part of learning to read other people is, is focusing on yourself first and, and realizing, you know, what you're doing and what your patterns are. So for example, in poker, that would be you know, think about what you're doing when you make a big bet with a with a strong hand versus when you make a big bet with a bluff. You know that you're going to have some differences in how you feel and like focus on how that presents. You know, and just being more mindful in that way, and being willing to examine how you feel and what you're actually doing. That's how you can find those things in other people. You know, and and I say it's the same. Uh, you know, across the board, whether it's uh, just being willing to to honestly examine. Because that's the thing we we are so you know we we are so egotistical obviously and it's not not in a bad way but just as humans it's like we're so focused on our narratives that that help us in the world you know that that help us function and so it's understandable that we don't want to examine some of those narratives because some of those narratives just help us function you know but really I think the the more people are willing to self-examine and, and see see their patterns and 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 just be willing to look at themselves from the outside I mean that's really hard to do I think it's it's why succeeding at poker or succeeding at other competitive things are so hard because it just takes so much willingness to, to self-examine, but that's, uh, yeah, that's really what success is about. I think,
0: yeah. I I mean, I think you're hitting on, on the key is that self-examination and looking at, we talked, we kind of talked off camera and we're going to bring it to the front now. Like being able to look at yourself and not only self-examine but be completely objective about it and not be hurt when you're like i failed at this because i made a bad decision that's like the i mean that's the key to winning in poker but it's also the key to winning in life it's like how do you get better you look at something go ahead
1: yeah and not and not uh and not beating yourself up too. I think it's like, because there's life or, any, or any, any endeavor at all is so complex and has so many factors. And I think we, we can have a tendency to, to beat ourselves up about, you know, we failed a, a, at this specific thing or we're not good at this specific thing. So for example, me, like, you know, I, it, it would be easy for me to build a narrative around like my social anxiety and my anxieties in general and be like, well, I'm not going to be successful because of these, these things I've faced, these obstacles the that, you know, it's, it's easy for me to feel like a failure in, in that regard, you know, and that's, that's kind of like what I struggled with when I was young, you know, it's like, those became the defining aspects of myself, but it's like, we're all more than any specific, you know, area that we can focus on. It's like, I'm more than my social anxiety that I have, or I'm more than the fact that I'm bad at math, for example, there's all these examples we can uh, pick not to say I'm bad at math. That was somebody else's example, but You get what I'm saying? Uh, There's just all sorts of ways we can build a narrative around our own, either our own, like how great we are at something or how bad we are at something. But none of those things really define us because we're all just, you know, as people, we're all like going to have through the environment or through natural things, we're going to have things that we're good or bad at. And like, we're all more or less than those things, you know, it's like, we're just, we're just people. uh, and, And so being willing to, to live with your, failures and not see that as, as a very defining aspect, just as I think we're all, we're often so much more forgiving of other people too. You know, it's like, we can see that somebody else is more than like a a failure they had or something they're bad at, or their one mistake, but like, we're more willing to like judge ourselves hard in that, in that area. So I think, and yeah, it's like two competing things. It's like, not being too fully to yourself for your successes because those some of those successes are going to be due to chance, you know, like if you succeed at a company, you might think you're at building a, a big company, you might think you're a genius, but it, you could have just been in the right place at the right time, you know. So examining that success and being like, well, you know, am I question whether you're really always making the right decisions? And then on the other end, it's like not beating yourself up for your failure. So it's like somewhere in the middle is like the is trying to see things objectively and not get too tied to either their losses or their wins, you know? Uh, yeah.
0: Hey, thanks for taking a moment to check out this episode of grow your impact, income and influence the number one show helping you reach millions. Have you ever thought about building your own webinar or using public speaking to reach your ideal audience? Well, if you'd like my help with it, over the last several years, I have built more than 40 live events for clients just like you. In the last 18 months, I've helped 32 entrepreneurs build their webinar with over $5 million in cumulative sales. If you'd like to see how I can work with you, or if you'd be interested in having me speak at your event or be on your podcast, go to stephen.coffee. That's S-T-E-V-E-N dot C O F-F-E-E to book a short call with me and see how we can work together. All right, let's jump back to the episode. Well, that's the, I mean, you you hit on so many good points there. Like the we are really quick to forgive other people, especially when they ask for it. Right. If it's our friend or somebody that's close to us, we're really quick to point out how great they are. But we are all really, really hard on ourselves. Right. Like that's the easiest thing to do. And I think you kind of said it at the beginning of that segment, learning to look at ourselves and have like some grace, some forgiveness and say, like, so what? I did something wrong. It like I'm not a failure that action was a failure and I can learn from it and separating. This is something that I talk to people a lot. Like just because something didn't work out doesn't mean that you're a failure. Like you're not the failure that action <laughs> failed, but you can change the action. You can change any action. That's what's great about being human, right? That's a, about mm-hmm. our experience. You can always change something. And sometimes you are going to make the best decision. You were going to take the right action and things just aren't going to Play out mm-hmm. like, and there's nothing you can do. That's, I mean, that was probably the biggest thing I learned from playing poker mm. what was that, and like, just like you have to brush it off and realize, like, I'm here for another day. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Like, I can make, I can make a better decision right now. I mean, we've all had. If you don't, if you've never played poker, I will tell you there are days, there are weeks where you will do all the right things over and over and over, and you'll look at your bank account and you'll be like, How do I lose? Like, how do I lose? repeatedly Mm -hmm. for five days in a row you did the right things but sometimes they just don't work out and it's like life can do that too but are you benny binion i was lucky enough to meet uh his to meet his son i can't mr binion um Mm -hmm. long time ago at a restaurant and one of the things that he said was like easy times make easy people when the tough when times get tough the tough get going like yeah that was one of the quotes
1: I think that's. Uh, I mean, that that it, so many people say that about poker, you know, because it is, it is almost like a fast forward. Like, uh, it's almost like living life in a in a in getting getting more life experience in a shorter time span. Because it's like the amount of like failures and successes you have in poker, like these big hand spots that come up so often, you know, bit significant spots, and the fact you have to deal with these things. It's almost like you know, starting a bunch of businesses and failing or succeeding at them in a, in a small form, you know, in a, in a, in a smaller yeah. form, obviously, but it, it's like, you're getting the same lessons. It's like, you're, you're, you're seeing how that your actions, no matter how good they are, aren't necessarily tied to your results, at least in the short-term, you know, it's tied to your results in the long-term, but I think there is, there is such a, so many life lessons there that, and and, and so many people yeah,
0: talk about that, about poker. And, and I, think, I think it's true. There's just so many lessons there. So let's, let's move a little bit and let's talk about reading other people in the game of life, being able to read other people. I mean, how does that, how do you see that outside of poker as like leading to success or leading to failure? And what are some of, we're going to get into tactics. I want to start with like kind of the theory. And then I want to hear like some of the most reliable ways to read people and like what, how that plays out in like a world sense
1: yeah, so uh, yeah, people ask me that a lot about real world stuff. I'm actually pretty like I'm pretty skeptical and it's funny you ask because I'm this podcast I'm just working on right now is about is an interview with Tim Levine who wrote a book about deception. you know his theories he's a psychology researcher and he has uh, theories about deception, detection, and how about a lot of the behavior information we tend to think of about that's accurate for detecting deception is just straight up bullshit. You know, like a lot of the research shows that it's really hard to detect deception and these kinds of things. Uh, so with that in mind, like I tend to like, it's not very often that I feel like I'm getting much more information than other people in real world situations. Like, uh, you know, I I do think the thing I will say is like, I think verbal stuff statement analysis is so much more, uh, meaningful and reliable, than is nonverbal stuff so I always I tend to tell people for if you're interested in reading people in the real world for like interviews or whatever speeches or interpersonal stuff, you should read books like Mark McClish's I Know You Are Lying, and he it's about analyzing what people are saying, like the actual content, and like because there's definitely like things you can learn there that apply to real life, uh, you know, things like why you know, and, and, and they're based on pretty simple and easy to understand logical ideas and uh psychological ideas you know for example like the fact that people don't like to directly lie so when people do try to deceive you they'll speak in more indirect and ambiguous ways and that that applies to poker too but it's just a general principle because we don't like to lie we it actually for some reason you know it's like when you watch interrogation videos and, and such it's like for some reason even people that are that have murdered people find it they don't like to just directly say like hey i i didn't kill that person you know it's like you would think that right. would be the easiest thing in the world but like people like have all these indirect ways they'll try to say that and the same in poker people don't like to say uh you know hey i'm bluffing or or you know they'll they'll or hey i have this this specific strong hand they'll find indirect ways to you know so it, it, it plays out in a lot of areas and that that i'd say is one of the key things that comes up in in real life is like well why is that person um speaking in an indirect manner and not just saying like a like an innocent person would they just come out and say like hey i didn't do it like and be defensive about it and, and like people that are guilty or or have something to hide speak in these more indirect ways and they they'll tend to be the other big pattern is they'll tend to be more conciliatory like they'll they'll be they'll be more if they have something to hide or, or are guilty in some way including bluffing and poker they'll be more conciliatory in the sense that they don't want to trigger the other person's uh, you know, anger or irritation. So they'll act in in ways that are more like obliging. And so this way this plays out in like interrogation scenarios, for example, is you know, somebody who's guilty, if the if the interrogator basically accuses them indirectly or directly, they'll be like, you know, an innocent person would be like, Hey, I didn't do that. Why, why are you doing this to me? But a, a guilty person's, you know, more likely to be like uh just really calm and be like, Well, I can see why you think that, but let me walk you through why, you know, it's like they're just more obliging and more nice and not as defensive. And that plays out in poker too, where like bluffers are unlikely to like even just get small uh, facial expressions of irritation, like a brief irritation, you know, or uh, like for a brow in in, in spots where they're bluffing because they don't want to trigger like examination from their opponent, you know, so it plays those, those kinds of patterns play out um, a lot in, in real world scenarios and i'd say the, the most the thing i'm probably uh the thing that comes up a lot i'd say in real world scenarios is just realizing like why did they say something indirectly when they could have just told me something directly you know why why did they do that and digging into that and, and asking and being more skeptical it just raises more it doesn't mean that there's no, they're necessarily hiding something it just means like hey maybe i should ask some more questions here uh that comes up a lot and i would say for people interested in that stuff read Mark McClish's book, I Know You Are Lying. And actually that was the, that was the foundation, the inspiration for me writing my Verbal Poker Tells book because I was like, oh, there's some of this stuff in poker. Like the, the things people say have a lot of meaning because, and much more meaning than nonverbal stuff because when we try to communicate, poker is such a competitive and, and deceptive atmosphere that a lot of times when people try to deceive, not even trying that hard to deceive, but it just, there's these little things where their attempts at deception can leak information you know like if they're trying to think you get you to think about something else uh you know the way they phrase the words can be very meaningful in and, and the same way in like interviews and interrogations now it doesn't mean that that's necessarily obviously always the case but it's more like especially if you're in like a borderline spot in poker which comes up a lot you might go one way or the other um but yeah, well, I think there is there's a lot to lot to learn. I, I think people the main mistake people make who are interested in, in reading people better is focusing on the nonverbal physical stuff and not focusing as much on the actual content of what people say.
0: The um I remember reading the verbal tells book, and I'm I'm probably gonna butcher it, but you were talking about like if somebody speaks up and says like I don't have X hand, they probably have a really strong hand and they're just trying to discount. And make you curious, so you call, and then they're going to be like, "Well, I don't have a pair of jacks; I've got three jacks." Or yeah, the,
1: the uh, that is the biggest, the biggest tell, like the most meaningful takeaway from verbal poker tells. And I didn't realize it when I started writing the book. It was only when I really delved into looking at, you know, examining because I, I worked for eight months straight on that book, and I looked at a lot of like, you know, build a database basically of, of hands and 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 building the patterns out. And so the really reliable tell was that bluffers do not like to what i call you know what do you call weaken their hand range verbally like they they don't want to directly or indirectly weaken their hand range and say like oh i could be bluffing here or oh i you know uh I, even indirect statements like saying like a, a bluffer is unlikely to say like oh i don't think you have much because i don't think you have much is an indirect weak hand statement about their own hand strength they're basically saying like because I don't think you have much, then I also don't have much. Right. So there's, there's these, all these categories of like indirect, uh, weak statements. And that, that plays out in in the real world, I think too, because people who are in a position of power or confidence and, or, or like, for example, they know, uh, they know they have some power in the, di- in the, in the dynamic or they, they know they're innocent and they will be proven innocent, whatever the, the situation is. Those people are just more likely to behave in, in looser ways and, and to, and to, make jokes and to be defensive. Like it, it's, it kind of plays into the relaxed uh, people who are more relaxed in general are more likely to have these various uh, loose mannerisms, which can include all sorts of verbal statements. And um, it's also interesting because the the thing that people often get wrong about reading deception is, you know, the fact that people who are relaxed are capable in behaving in a range of ways, which in, can include you know stumbling over words because they're not really thinking about their words but a lot of those things are, are things that people think are tied to deception so you actually have a lot of people that will be like oh he he's lying I think because he stumbled over his words or because he looks anxious in an obvious way but it's like the fact that that person is willing to look anxious or stumble over their words in the first place is often a sign of just how relaxed they are because they're they're not really you know whereas somebody who's guilty might be like controlling their their mannerisms more and actually be less likely to, to have those things present, you know? Uh, so that there's a range of like public things that we, t- people tend to think are meaningful uh, that just simply aren't that meaningful. And it's funny you ask about that because that's actually the, the podcast I'm working on now, which is about these, these common misconceptions we have about you know what behavior means and when people are deceiving us. Yeah.
0: So I know you said that there are probably like there's not a lot of, real world application where you're like making life or death decisions on tells my question would be do you have an example at the poker table and in real life of where reading somebody or paying attention or picking up on something made a big difference if you have that's one for question both, that'd be great but i know you have ones for poker i mean they're in the books
1: yeah poker for sure um the, the harder part is uh you know and that's a really good point i should probably Try to keep a database of of times when that, or or, or um, a doc document of of times when that happens. Because I know I have examples from real world, uh, but it's hard to think of one off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, it's all right. I will, I will work on that. That's a that's a very good
0: question you all, you, you pose. Yeah,
1: it's uh, all good. Let me, let me think. Let me think about uh, you do. Would you like one from from poker?
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, poker. Uh, we're gonna do some for those of you who are poker geeks and you're listening to this because there was poker in the topic, we're going to talk a little bit about poker. So yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about one or two poker tells. That yeah, you saw. I'll give you,
1: I, w- I would probably usually give you a verbal one, but since we po- talk so much about that, let me give you one that's like a less obvious and, and lesser used one is, you know, so I was playing this, I don't, I, I never played many tournaments, uh, but I was playing this. I mostly played cash games, which is, if you don't know, cash games are just where you can cash in or cash out at any time. There's no particular end in, uh, but tournaments to like have a defined start and you, once you're out, you're out. Uh, so I was playing this, you know, a few hundred dollar tournament once. And uh, so the person, you know, and a lot of the tells you'll get that are meaningful or practical come from the people directly behind you because you get to see, get some sense of what they're doing, you know directly behind you and they have position on you. So they have uh, advantage on you and can can mess you up. So, you know, th- this is a very small spot, but I think it's important because uh, these kind of spots come up so often in-, in games and they can really add up over time. So for example, I, w- I was thinking about raising in late position, which is a, I think I had like King eight or something, King eight offsuit and raising in late position, you know, is a, is a pretty uh, common thing to try to steal the blinds or if people call you, you have position on them. So you have an advantage on them uh, for the non-poker audience. So I was, ra- I was getting ready to raise with uh King eight offsuit, but I noticed this guy behind me, uh, who had been, you know, usually his, his usual MO, he looked at his cards early and he would, uh, he would often be moving around a good amount or talking. He, he was just physically loose, you know, with his, his regular hand strengths, you know, weak, medium strength hands. Cause that's mostly what you get in poker. You know, you dealt, you're, you're rarely dealt strong hands, like aces, Kings, Queens, or, or ace King or whatever. Uh, so then I was getting ready to raise and I noticed behind me, this guy was just sitting like really stoically still, you know, just like super still. And that's, you know, when somebody's varying like that, because, you know, mostly you get the weak and medium strength hands. And so when somebody shows a big difference like that, that's, that's usually pretty meaningful and that can show up in a lot of different ways from like big bet situations to this spot, which was really early in the hand. And, uh, so I just decided to fold, you know, and and that, that might, that that's a very small and minor spot. Uh, so that he. So when I folded, he ended up raising, and uh, I think he ended up taking it down. Didn't never end up seeing what he had, but the but the point is that those kinds of spots that that seem really minor are actually very much present all the time. And if you're paying a little bit more attention, you can spot that kind of stuff and save yourself from you know raising and then getting re-raised or whatever and, and losing that you know a significant bet there, uh, or even you know preventing yourself from uh, you know maybe making a three bet that you would have made looser after that person, you know, you might've might re-raised that person sometimes and maybe you take it a little bit more cautiously, things like that. Uh, so that, I think that's a, and that's actually a lot, a lot of people focus on the big bet spots. It's like, is this person bluffing or, or, or do they have a strong hand in it? how anxious or relaxed are they, are they seeming in, in, a, in a few different ways? Uh, but a lot of the in practice, a lot of the tells you get, Are actually from these early hand spots that have more to do with like, well, is this person focused or not? So it's not even about the emotion, you know, it's, it's, it's about the, the level of focus or lack of focus, uh, which is kind of unique to, to, to games in general, and maybe even poker because poker is an interesting game where unlike a lot of other games, you can actually just fold, you know? So there's, there's a tendency for people to not be focused because they know they're folding, whether that's early in the hand, or even sometimes later in the hand, they can just be like more relaxed, because they know they're folding and it's actually can be a tell of weakness. Uh, and that doesn't really have an equivalent in a lot of other games, and especially not in like interrogation or real world scenarios. So I think well, it's I think, a less yeah, go ahead.
0: I mean, I think it has something to do with real life because you can tell you can tell when something is important to somebody That's or true. when yeah. they are. I mean, I can think of I mean, I, I won't put business in it, I'll just put personal in it. Like you can tell because I always like to know what's important to other people because that's how I'm going to interact. I'm always looking to help people. And you can tell like when somebody is, when you're talking about something and they're really casual about it versus mm. when they pause, take a second and they're intentional. That's true. I know that that means something. It's kind of the corollary to what you're saying. and I At the poker table, I think that is, I think you're 100% correct. I always try to, something that was taught to me early on I can't remember where I read it, but it was, you don't look at your cards. You either want to look at your cards right away when you get them and put them down and remember, or you want to wait till it gets to you because you don't, you want to be paying attention to what other people are doing. And if they freeze, you know that there's something important because they, most people won't. That's your, I have a couple.
1: Oh yeah. Let let me quick real quick. I think you're right that I I didn't mean to said there was no meaning from focus or lack of focus it's more that it's just like much more apparent in poker versus like you know things like interrogation it's like somebody in an interrogation scenario is like pretty focused the whole time and isn't like (laughs) isn't knowing they're immediately like leaving the interrogation in other words so uh that's just to say like games poker and other games can have like dramatically different scenarios than real world scenarios but uh yeah i think you're right there there definitely are like tells of like, Hey, is this person actually focused on the, on something? And what does that really mean? Like, cause you know, for another example is like if someone's barely paying attention, uh, in like a deposition or interview or something, it's like, um, you know, is that a sign that they're maybe just so relaxed, like, cause they are innocent or skilled or whatever, you know, they, they have some position of power. Maybe that's what is driving their like lack of interest or, you know, there is, there's definitely information that can, that can be present there. Yeah.
0: So I have um, I'm gonna wrap up here in just a minute, but I wanted to throw some names at you that have been pretty big in the poker space lately, just to get your thoughts on them. So I'm gonna start with uh with G Man Garrett Adelstein. Like he's made some of the best folds I've ever seen. He folded top set the other day in a cash game with no straights and like I think the I think it was runner runner flush and he folded, which I just Mm -hmm. thought was unbelievable. I don't know if you've watched him, if you've listened to him play like yeah. Any thoughts on him in general?
1: Yeah, I think uh I mean, from what I've learned and examined, I think Tells play a, a significant but not huge role in his in his reads. I think I think he's really, you know, he's really good at understanding other people's tendencies, just fundamental tendencies, and I think I do I do think Tells play a greater uh, role in his success than most people would think. And I think he even had there was something he put out years ago about Tells uh that I think he kind of regrets putting out now. And I, I can't remember where he put it out. And I, I have a note to like go look at that because I never actually looked at it. But yeah, I think uh he did it on some interview somewhere, Crush Alive Poker or something like that. Uh yeah. But I think he I think he kind of regretted maybe putting some of that stuff out because it was like before he got more attention and before he was playing, you know, higher stakes. And and I think he, uh, but this is just to say like, yeah, some of the hands i have seen from him and, and based on like looking at how the other players act, I do think tells play a significant role in his decision making process. And I think the interesting thing is, uh, you know, him and other high stakes players have a motivation to not admit that. Right. Because that would make, Players want more on guard. You know, like it's understandable that pe- people don't want to talk to me. High-stakes players don't want to talk to me about tells because the more people talk about it, the more on guard people are going to be at the market. They're going to work on, you know, their tells. Yeah. And like that's why it was always cool to have people that were willing to talk to me about it. Like I talked to Brian Rast, who's the high-stakes player, about yeah. tells. And but it's, you know, that's just to say it's understandable why these guys don't want to talk about tells and why it's kind of hard sometimes to get that information and why it probably helps explain why, like, despite there being many players that were more, you know, high stakes and more successful than me, I was, you know, pretty low stakes player in the, in the scheme of things, you know, high stakes by everyday standards, I guess, but not by those guys standards, but it helps explain why I was the one to write these books. Cause you know, the, the people yeah. that are playing, you know, higher stakes don't have an incentive to share the information. Cause a, they like playing poker and B that would eat into their, you know, you know, win rates or whatever you know so uh but yeah i I think that's uh he's he's a he's a good example i think yeah
0: well i think he i mean i think he definitely relies on tells and he's he is very dialed in um the i want to we're going to talk about an old school player phil lock so phil (laughs) lock was like my favorite to watch growing up because he was super entertaining I actually your book inspired me to go back and I, I made like some spreadsheets and watched him play. And like the thing that I saw watching him was that he was a master of distraction. If he was super strong, he was talk. He would always talk about how he played all these hands. I play all the time. I'm super <laughs> loose. He's one of the tightest players at the table. But he's really good at drawing people away. I don't know if you have any, if anything comes up for Phil Locke, but.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, uh, when I wrote verbal poker then I, you know, had this huge spreadsheet of like thousands of hands that I had uh, written things about, uh, taken notes on. And uh, the interesting thing about Phil Locke, he was one of the most talkative players, but he also had the least, you know, least information given away. I thought, you know, like, even if you look at somebody like Negranu or other uh, players that, you know, were capable of talking a lot they had significant patterns and that's not to say that that's bad because sometimes some of those patterns that you can find are when they're talking to players that they think aren't likely to pick up on those patterns. Like they're, they're, they're trying to deceive, you know, verbally deceive a, a player they think is worse than them. So they're okay. If maybe some of their behaviors seem obvious to other good players, cause they're using it, you know, but, but the interesting thing about Phil Locke is he was able to talk about a lot of different things, but I, I never, it never seemed like he was giving inf- information away. Uh, you, you know, and and that struck me as pretty cool because he fostered a really fun atmosphere, which I think is good. You know, that's one of the things I talk about in verbal poker tells it's like, you can, you can talk and have a fun atmosphere as long as you're aware of like how you're likely to give information away. And that's what a lot of people found helpful about my book. It's like, if you know the areas where you're likely to leak information that allows you to just talk more loosely because you're not as afraid of giving away that information. I think he was very instinctually good at that because i think he had an instinctive understanding of like the psychological and tells aspects of like reading people's stuff and he was so verbally intelligent i felt like that he he kind of instinctually understood that uh yeah he was a lot of fun to a lot of fun to watch
0: i mean he i probably modeled him more than uh more than other people because i like to talk i like to have fun but like (laughs) watching how he worked the other person his partner in crime Antonio Like he was a magician and a hypnotist. Mm -hmm. So I've seen him do, I mean, some of the old high stakes poker, you can see him like ask the right questions Mm -hmm. and he knows exactly what somebody's holding. And it's, I don't know. He was probably the best at reading, I think, because of his background.
1: Yeah, I agree. He, He had a lot of skills there. Like he used to, I think he understood a lot of those principles. It was kind of like the stuff that I drew attention to in verbal poker tells that I think were lesser known that I think a lot of people just, you know, people who played a lot of poker knew that stuff, but didn't talk about it. Uh, But also I think, yeah, the, he would, he would, I think he, he one time talked about, uh, you know, people's aura, which I think he wasn't really meaning, you know, really an aura, but what he was referring to was like, oh, these minute things of like, well, how much, like, how, how, how loose are their Like tiny mannerisms, right? It's like, they're sitting there and they might be, you know, to, to an untrained eye or to a lay person's eye, they might just seem like, oh, this person's just sitting there, nothing's happening. But you know, there might be like minute things of like, oh, they're they're just moving around slightly more and a little bit more loose. And that gives you a sense of like, they're they're a little bit more relaxed maybe than uh, somebody who's like just a little bit more tense. And you know, a lot of times, one example of that it, it comes up a lot for eye, uh, eye movements, you know? And one of the things I talk about is eye movements are some of the more uh, meaningful and reliable behaviors. Like, so if somebody's made a big bet, Uh, And and the reason it's so reliable often is is that it's just lesser known. So for example, if somebody makes a big bet, a big bluff, let's say they're bluffing, they're going to be, they have less dynamic eye movement. They they, they tend to like stare in one place, for example, Uh, whether that's at someone or at the table or whatever their cards, whereas someone who's more relaxed can have more minute eye movements they're just like more relaxed so they're just eyes are glancing around the table right and that's like not well known you know some people wouldn't be thinking like oh i have to keep my eyes you know static in one place but uh but that's the kind of minute thing that i think like when it comes to like physical gestures that antonio was talking about with the aura idea it's like sometimes you just get a sense like and you might not even know if like you might not even know what it is that's cluing you into that you just get a sense like someone's more relaxed and, and maybe, and sometimes I think it's like people like subconsciously sensing like, oh, that person's just like their muscle, their muscles are just slightly looser. you know And you can just sense that uh, by glancing at them a little bit, you know, out, out of the corner of your eye even, you know. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think there's, those things can be valuable. And, and especially the thing is, I think the thing that people don't understand about reading poker tells and why they can be so valuable is like, it's so much different than interrogation or, or real life settings. It's like, cause in poker, a lot of times you're kind of on the fence, you know, it's like, you could just as easily justify from the fundamentals, a call or a fold, you know, cause you're often yeah. being put in these, in these borderline spots. And so if you just have a little bit more information to go one way or another, even if it's only like 55% reliable versus chance, you know, it's like these kinds of things can help you make better decisions because you're making so many of them. And that's one of the reasons it's so unlike, other real world behavior situations. Cause it's not like in the real world, you're not getting all these like chances to make these small, you know, decisions, uh, pretty, pretty often. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, a, so it's a very, it's a very different, different realm. Like you, you wouldn't want to base a big decision in life on like, Oh, I feel like that person's, you know, 55%, uh, to be lying versus chance, you know, whereas in poker, like that might be an actual thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all the difference. Yeah. So. Um, I mean that that brings to mind uh, like just thinking about like staring at table. There was a that Tom Donhan versus Phil Ivy last. It was like one of the high stakes pokers where uh, Phil Ivy had like bottom pair ace. I think he had ace four, and there was a pair of fours, and Tom just barrel barrel barreled and like yeah. over bet river. And Phil, I I read behind the scenes on that one. It was a Phil took fifteen minutes, like his spidey I saw set, that, Yeah, I remember that one told him that he should call like a $400,000 bet. It was some ridiculous bet. And, but he couldn't bring himself to do it, but that's like that, like hairline. The last person I'll bring up to you. Um, he's kind of been on the last couple shows of his name's Eric Parsons. Uh, he was on, he's been on some of the poker Go stuff. He owns a Maverick media company. Um, he talks nonstop. I don't know if you've seen him.
1: Yeah. Somebody drew my attention to him. Um, yeah. I might be getting him confused. Yeah. I've definitely seen him, but I think I'm getting him also confused with somebody else. Somebody drew my attention to, but yeah, I think, I think I know what you're talking about. He's he's, he talks a lot and I think he has a lot of the, not to call him out, but I think he has a lot of the, uh, some of the same, some of the same patterns that I talk about in uh, verbal poker tells.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, it's been really fun watching him. I actually went back to my notes. Um, uh, when I read the book, I take, I I read it in Kindle and I, I type out notes, um, I went back to read some of them, just watching them. So Zach, this has been a super fun podcast. we kind of unpacked a lot of different things around tells and habits, um, the books again, three different poker books that you can go find on Amazon. They're, they're all on, uh, on audible as well. Right. I believe Yeah, they're so.
1: all on audible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there's if you play poker definitely worth checking out if you don't play poker but you're interested in the psychology of reading people podcast one more time is people who read people right
1: that's a it. yeah it's a behavior dash podcast yeah and i've also um i sometimes tackle like political polarization related topics on that because i think it's a uh, the psychology behind that i think is important for people to understand and i think it's such an important topic in general and i'm actually for people interested in that i, I want to throw that out there. Cause I'm actually working on a book about healing American divides and depolarization. Cause I think, you know, I, I just thought I'd, I've t- I've interviewed a lot of people about that subject and I figure I just like try my best to, you know, say, I tried to help the situation, you know,
0: <laughs> that's, I mean, we could probably spend another hour talking about that. I think it is the biggest thing is to become depolarized and to just realize we're, we're all just humans trying to get along and trying to figure this thing out.
1: Yeah. And I think the, you know, throw one important point in there. I think that the obstacle people have to thinking about depolarization or taking polarization seriously is like, we, you know, all of us tend to think, well, the other group is so much worse. You know, why, why should we have to think about polarization on both sides? You know, people can think that obviously, yeah. but I think that my my main point in helping people be interested in learning more about it is that you can continue thinking the other side is much, much worse than your side Uh and, and while being willing to examine how polarization dynamics work, and how we and our group contribute to those those t- those uh, t- t- to polarization, because I think that's a big obstacle that people have is like, well, I don't want to think about it because it's not our problem; it's the other group's problem, you know. But we can you can Everyone's. continue thinking that while examining like how our us versus even our own us versus them language in our everyday life like saying you know all the other group is this way on on social media contributes to polarization and contributes to these us versus them dynamics and emotions have so much more to do with this stuff than people think you know the 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 group grievances and feeling hurt and feeling insulted and and feeling like the other group is dangerous to your group you know all, all these emotions play so much more of a role than people think there's so much more psychology and emotions than people think in these things. Uh, So that's just to give a pitch for if you're interested in those things, that's that's kind of stuff I tackle on the podcast, too.
0: Awesome. Well, Zach, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and giving people some places to go for more resources. Uh, You've been a great guest. I really appreciate the books. I appreciate all that you've done for the poker community, but you've also just been a great guest and shared a ton of information with us.
1: Thanks, Steve. It was a great conversation and great questions. and, And thanks for having me on.
0: No worries. Tell everybody else out there until next time. Take action, change lives, make money, and learn how to play poker. We'll talk to you soon. All
1: right. uh,
0: are you looking to scale your business, but trying to figure out how to get your message across? Well, go to storyselling.how to grab my free course that will show you how to discover everything that you need to build your business through stories. These stories work, whether it's in social media, email, or public speaking, there are five core stories that you'll learn. You'll be able to use all of them by the time you're done with this course. Again, that is storyselling.how. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to tune in next time.